Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show, all about movies. You're listening to The Jan Price Show, and today my guest is Nancy Bursky, and we're talking about her new documentary, A Crime on the Bayou. Nancy, thank you for coming on the show. It's great to have you here. It's great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. I I thought this documentary was just superb. Um, everything, the cinematography, the music, all of the interviews, uh, it was so beautifully put together. Um, and I, I just, I really, really loved it. And I have lots and lots of questions for you uh, before we get started. But so our audience knows um, what this documentary, A Crime on the Bayou, is all about. Why don't you give us a brief brief synopsis. Happy to. Um, This is a story of Gary Duncan, a 19-year-old black fisherman from uh, Plaquemines Parish, Louisiana, in 1966, who stops on the side of the road as he sees four white boys harassing two black boys, two younger black boys. And he stops to, to see what he can do to stop the fight. And in the process of doing this, he touches the white boy's elbow and he gets arrested for battery for touching a white boy's arm. This is in 1966 in Plaquemines Parish, Louisiana, a parish that is effectively ruled by a white supremacist named Leander Perez. And this is right around the time that the schools are being integrated. Perez is very unhappy about this. And he decides he's going to make a model. He's going to make an example of Gary, Gary Duncan. So he has him arrested. And there's actually a criminal child trial um, against Gary Duncan. Um, I probably shouldn't tell you too much more about it, but the absurdity of all of that, I'm sure, is, is evident as I tell the story. But we take that story, we put it on a larger canvas, and we help people understand what was going on during that time. Um, a young Jewish attorney steps in to work with Gary Duncan and help him during this trial. He had come to Louisiana to work on civil rights cases, working very closely with the most radical black law firm in the area named Collins, Douglas, and Eli. Um, And he himself gets arrested, which just increases the absurdity of all of this. And I don't mean to make light of it because this was traumatic for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. Eric Duncan was traumatized. Richard Sobel was, was terrified of being in jail, in a southern jail. Um, and, and again, the rest of the story comes out in the film. But that, that's, that's pretty much the outline of it. Well, it, it is so, again, it's so well done and the story is so well told. Um, I'm always curious as to why someone is attracted to a certain project. So how did this project uh, get into your consciousness and what made you decide that you needed to do a documentary about this story? Because it is a very powerful story. Well, thank you for asking. Um, I did learn about Gary Duncan's story through a book that was being written by a gentleman named Matthew Van Meter. The book was eventually called Deep Delta Justice. I read the proposal for this book and I was fascinated by it because it tied very closely to other films I had made already. I started my filmmaking career with The Loving Story, which is the story of Mildred and Richard Loving, an interracial couple who were married in 1958 in Virginia. They'd actually gone to Washington, D.C. to get married because they knew they weren't allowed to get married in Virginia, but they 
went to Washington, D.C., they got married, they came back, and they lived in Virginia, and they were arrested for miscegenation. So in between those two films, I made a film called The Rape of Recy Taylor. This is a film Mm -hmm. about a black woman in 1944 in Alabama who gets gang raped by six white boys. She has the courage to stand up and accuse her attackers. That was never done then. It put everybody at risk. It put her at risk. It put her family at risk. But she had to stand up for herself. So she is like Mildred Loving and Gary Duncan. All three of them actually stand up against a corrupt system. Um, And so it's even though these situations are very dissimilar, the themes that run through them, the the um, the politics and the culture and the sociology that we're looking at, very much the same. So yes. you asked me why I made this film. You know, at first I was worried that I might be going back to the same story too many times. But when I realized how beautifully they interwove with each other's themes, um, I felt there was I had no no choice but to make this one. And, and they became effectively a trilogy. Yes, they really are. They they definitely are. And then your film about the Lovings became a film. Um, you know, yeah, the documentary became a narrative ex- film, exactly. Feature film, yes. called the Loving, called Loving. The love, yeah. And it was it was a well told story. And I know your documentary was even better than the than the film itself. So one of the questions, and in, in when I was doing the research, and and you asked this question, is why should someone who's white tell the stories of black people you know these are all you know every one of these stories um, that you've chosen to delve into um, obviously is are about black people so why do you feel a white filmmaker should be making these films and telling these stories I am, first of all, let me say that I don't feel a white filmmaker should tell them. I think that sometimes one is compelled to tell it. Um, one feels very strongly about the stories, um, partly because I believe white people are complicit in these stories. Mm-hmm. If it weren't for the way white people treated black people during all three of these instances, and to, and we see this today as well, obviously it's all connected to what we're looking at today, um, we wouldn't have these tragedies. And so, though I know... You know, black people feel very strongly about working hard to change the system. I feel like white people need to be engaged in changing the system yes. as well. Yeah. Um, in the case of Gary Duncan's story, Gary Duncan really tells his story. This is his story to tell, and he and what I've done is provide a platform for him to do that. Do I shape it into a larger story and help us understand some of the more abstract ideas that surround the story? Yes, and and I think that's important to do, um, whether you're white or black, because I think that we're talking about institutions and systems and and the law. The law is very is a very big part of this story. So I, I think. Basically, everybody should feel some responsibility to address these stories. I think white people definitely have a responsibility to do that. Um, but I don't feel I own these stories. I know that that's a big question. Who owns these stories? Who gets to tell them? I hope it's our characters who are really telling these stories. It's their stories. And also, too, just what you're saying about, you know, white people need to take a responsibility, too. And, you know, and I, you, know you're, you might be, your perspective is... Any director is going to have a different perspective on each project, obviously, but your perspective is going to be different. And, and I agree with you. There's no no doubt about it that we, all of us, need to be working together for 
the, the changes that need to be made. I mean, and it's interesting in watching your film, which took place in 1966 and beyond, how things haven't really changed as much as we think they have. They have in many ways, but in many others, they have not. And, and your film is just timely about that. You know, just your, the timing of this film couldn't be better because it, it is exactly some of the same things that are going on. Right. We talk about microaggressions where black people, you know, feel literally every day as they walk out of their house, the minute they walk out, they feel some kind of um, abuse and some kind of racism. And, you know, Gary Duncan, who really didn't commit a crime at all, no. is is the victim of that kind of abuse. Um, I think the, the, um, the fact that this is a less sensational crime, like unlike the rape of Reese Taylor and the arrest of um, Richard and Mildred Loving um, and, and, and they're banished from the state of Virginia for 25 years, this, is, this seems small in comparison but it really isn't because it represents, you know, all these hundreds of thousands of microaggressions that black people feel daily. And he mm-hmm. did get thrown into jail, you know, and and he could have pleaded guilty and he chose not to because he wanted to stand up to this system. So um, I think whether the crime is big or small or not a crime at all, they're all connected and we're seeing this happening daily. Yes. And, and, you know, and we just have to the, the bravery of him to yes. decide you know I'm not, it would have been the easy way out and i know a lot of you know a lot many people would have you know definitely would have uh just to get it over with be done with it and all of that but he stood up for his rights and and so wonderful that richard sokol so let's talk about him because you were blessed um to have him in this film uh, I would say because he passed away. What right after you finished filming? Yeah, he did. No, well, he actually saw the film. He, he saw, saw the film. film. Good. Okay. And 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 died actually a month later. Wow. Um, and I understand from his family that that was one of his happiest days. Uh-huh. So that meant so much to me. But you know, he's courageous as well. Yes. Uh, yes. I mean, Gary Duncan certainly is at more risk than a white attorney who comes into Louisiana to to. Uh, practice law there, but he was practicing law without a license. And Leander Perez, this white supremacist who was who was kind of the villain of our piece, right, um, uses that as a reason to arrest him. I think um, the, many white supremacists um, look at Jews in not quite the same way as they do blacks, but they 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 really find them abhorrent. And this is where a lot of anti-Semitism comes into play today. Mm -hmm. We're seeing a lot of it today. Um, They felt that Jews were the ones that were organizing the blacks and making, you know, everybody's life so difficult because the Jews were coming in and and taking advantage of the situation. You know, I think that other people would say that, you know, the Holocaust had only happened. This is in 1966. Um, The Second World War ends in 1945. It's only 20 years earlier. So that's pretty fresh in the minds of a lot of Jewish citizens. And, um, and I think they do truly feel a connection to much of the suffering that the blacks are experiencing. Um, we say in the film, of course, that white Jewish lawyers could do things that blacks couldn't think about doing in the South. Um, and, and so there is a distinction, um, but it, there's a distinction with perhaps not so much of a difference because the Jews really were, they, they did feel some risk as well. Right. And well, of course, the Jewish people have felt persecuted as well as the blacks. So there's, you know, they identify with that persecution that's taken place. And I think 
I think you can easily, I, I just want to emphasize the fact that, you know, in our film, we say this, and I know people uh, would agree that, you know, Jews have been feeling persecuted for centuries, mm-hmm. um, but they still have a white skin. Right. And black people don't. And there is just a, a different. It's much, much harder for the black community to deal with some of these issues. Oh, 100 percent. 100 percent. What um, you've got some really w- amazing people involved in this film. Um, you, John Legend is one of the producers. How did how did he become involved with this? Um, John Legend and his company Get Lifted um, does take an interest in documentaries. Um, and one of one of our colleagues another producer introduced it to his company and they looked at it and they loved it i think the thing that most attracted um john legend to it um and he'll be talking about this i think in the course of our release is the allyship that he saw between gary duncan and richard sobel yes you know that friendship that ally allyship is the heartbeat of our film um and it represents a larger allyship that we've seen over the years we certainly saw it in the 60s and it's received a new kind of scrutiny today during Black Lives Matter. Right. Um, but I think that many people believe that things aren't going to change or certainly not change rapidly enough if people don't come together to fight these corrupt systems. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that moves him very much. Yes. And we did see that last summer, despite the pandemic, you know, with all of the after the George Floyd murder um, white and black getting together, um, you know, all nationalities, uh, creeds, colors, everything. And and, and it was during a pandemic of all times to be out in the streets yeah. marching all over the country. Um, so uh, I think there is a pulling together. And I think, you know, again, um, we need sometimes, you know, in our public life, like the murder of George Floyd, but we're seeing it over and over again. It doesn't stop with many others, you know, Ahmaud Aubrey, many, many, many more. Um, to raise our consciousness again about it, to, you know, have for us to all look at it again, you know, as human beings and what we want to do with this. What really connects us is our common humanity. Exactly. And um, I I think that I hope our film does give one some hope for that kind of change. Um, It's all too slow, obviously. Yes, it is. And, And I think our film makes that point as well, but it does give you some hope. Yeah, when you look at, this is 1966 when this incident happened, and here we are, you know, and and, and the, the the archive photos. Now, that was, I, I love that. How did you come up, how did you find all of these wonderful um, photos that were archived and, and, asked, and all the interviews? Because there was a lot, you know, you had the audio of the actual trials. How did, how did you find all of that? Well, those... Fortunately, those trials were recorded. And so we, we actually, I should say, the transcripts of the trials existed. Okay. We did those, um, we, the audio is ours. We had actors read those, those parts in the, in the trials. Okay. Um, the audio from the, civil, from the Supreme Court is all recorded. Anyone can go and listen. Go on to Oye.com, and they can listen to any Supreme Court um, hearing um, I mean, we did. We used it in the loving story as well. So that's always available to people if they're interested. Um, the photographs were researched by. We have a wonderful researcher named Hannah Shepard, as well as Vanessa Martino works for us in Ed Augusta Films, and um, we were able to dig deep and find those many photos. 
they are used to represent the time and the place and the people. They are not necessarily the exact people we're talking about. But because we're trying to put this on a larger canvas, we feel that that kind of thing does work. Yeah, but that, you know, that, that obviously... That was, it was really interesting to look at everything that you 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 have in this film that you that has been archived, um, and you know it, obviously it does make a difference when you're able to have that. I've seen lots of documentaries where you use some artwork in there, but I've seen more lately that are using more and more of that technique um, to represent the story, but you've been able to come up with a lot of wonderful archived photos. Also, I noticed in the credits, Martin Scorsese was involved in this. How did he get involved? He's an advisor to me um, on this film. Aren't you lucky? Not bad to have Martin Scorsese as your advisor. <laughs> so, very generous. Very generous. Very generous. And then I love the way you end it. I'm, I've always been, since I was a little girl, that you must watch the credits. I've always, when, when I, I had a friend who was an actor when I was younger, and he said, the movie's not over until the credits are over. And whenever I go to the movies, I tell my friends, look, if you want to get up after the movie's over, go, but I'm going to stay for the credits. And there's always a nice little, sometimes there's um, some little piece of uh advice or something at the end of the credits and you do that beautifully with a quote from John Lewis. Yes, he reminds you that we should always look back and study history because we keep repeating these problems over and over again and um, it just it did feel right at the end of the credits. But another thing under the credits that I want to point out is that we have an original song. Yes. Written by Raphael Sadiq. Um, and we're thrilled with the song. They're going to be releasing that as a single on the same day as our film opens theatrically, which is June 18th. And so people can listen to it either, you know, on YouTube or Spotify. But please listen to it when you when you watch our film, because if you watch our film and you sit through the credits, you'll hear his song, which is it's called My Path. And we're, we just love it. Oh, it's beautiful. It really is beautiful. And that it, it again, it gives you a reason to want to sit through the credits to listen to the song, uh, for sure. But let's talk about the music now that you've brought the music up, because the music is, is just wonderful and perfect with the tone of this documentary. Thank you. Um, you know, most people would expect to hear blues or some kind of soul music or music that's indigenous to Louisiana. And there was something about the footage that I was looking at that just made me feel cool jazz. And, and I really can't explain it. Um, maybe because the story itself is a little bit unexpected and there's a little bit of cynicalness to it when you realize the irony of Gary Duncan being arrested for touching the white boy's arm. So, yeah, we use a little Chet Baker. We use some Miles Davis. We use some Mingus. Um, in the beginning of the film, primarily, there's also a beautiful score by Virgil Thompson, yeah. which was written for the Louisiana story. And we have a little bit of footage from the Louisiana story. So it, you know, it was somewhat coincidental that, you know, I was watching the Louisiana story, I was listening to the music, I tried putting it into the beginning of the film, and it just worked beautifully. So it was a wonderful way to honor that 
that film, which is by Robert Flaherty, and the Virgil Thompson score, which threads itself through the film. Um, there's also a moment where we hear Randy Newman's incredible uh, song called Louisiana 1927, which mm-hmm. was written in recognition of the flood of 1927, um, and water becomes a metaphor in our film as well. So once again, these things kind of fold themselves into the story, and that's that's part of the fun of making these movies is weaving it all together. Yes. How long did it take you to film this? Well, you start, you know, you do a set of interviews and then you come back and look at them and think about them. And then you go back and do another set of interviews. And of course, I'm not alone. I have a wonderful team working with me, Claire Chandler and Vanessa Martino and Rex Miller, who shot it um, and, and, and various sound people um, were at these shoots. Um, and then I would work with my editor, Anthony Rapoli, and um, and it takes a few years to for it all to come together right. because sometimes you know you do parts of it and then okay then now you have to record the courtroom scenes so that happens at another time it's all spread out so you've done three of these what you're calling your trilogy um, do you what did you for you because each one is unique and different what did you learn from each one of these? stories how did it change you and your life well it certainly made me feel like i'm doing i was doing something valuable because i felt like these stories were really important to tell Mm -hmm. and um not that i don't value filmmaking as a profession i do but when you when you can make a film that communicates these kinds of messages and helps an audience empathize with people like Gary Duncan and Mildred Loving and, and Lucy Taylor. You know, it, it does give you a sense of purpose, which is mm-hmm. really important. Um, I was reminded that anybody can change history. You have these people that did not set out to change history, were not activists, and they they do just by dint of their moral character. So that was, that was a very important thing. I was also very impressed with resilience, and that comes up in a couple of my other films as well, you know, it, it takes a certain kind of inner strength to be able to stand up to um, uh, systemic racism, to corrupt culture, and, and even to um, accidents of, of life that, that afflict you. And, and you find yourself in a situation such as my film Afternoon of a Fawn about a ballet dancer who's stricken with polio. You know, she, she has to learn to live with polio. At, you know, she can't dance anymore. Hmm. And her resilience was, was really, you know, courageous and inspiring. So I guess I'm attracted to those stories, but if, if anything has impacted me, it's it's that kind of thing. Do you have something else you're working on currently? We are actually just beginning to develop a film on um, Midnight Cowboy. Oh. Um, the film that was made in 1967. There's a new book out by Glenn Frankel, and um, we have optioned the book, and um, I, with two other producers, uh, Susan Margolin and Simon Kilmurray, and I are beginning to develop this this project and we're really excited about it it's not going to be the making of midnight cowboy it's it's more the universe of midnight cowboy you know having having the culture of that time impacted that film and how that film impacted the culture um and how how films can actually be life-changing yes definitely that's what i say all the time on this show exactly that well i i can't wait to see that one too so i'll have to have you back on the show once you get that one completed 
Where can people see this film, Nancy, A Crime on the Bayou? Thank you so much for asking. Um, we are opening theatrically uh, on on June 18th in New York and in L.A., in Beverly Hills and Pasadena. Um, we are opening in various other places around the country, and I encourage people to come on to our Facebook page, A Crime on the Bayou, um, where we will be announcing all the other theaters that will be showing the film. Um, and we'll, we'll also send our viewers to a microsite, which will have a lot more. Our distributor has a microsite that's Shout Factory. Um, and then eventually it will be digitally available. That will be sometime in August. Um, and then in the fall, it will be on, on TV. I'm not sure I'm, I, I can announce that yet. But in November, it will be available on, on uh, cable television. Wonderful. Well, everybody, Nancy, so much. Thank you so much for being on the show. And everybody, please seek out A Crime on the Bayou. It is um, just a really excellent documentary. And um, and you'll, you'll learn a lot and it will touch you and maybe motivate you to... Uh, get more actively involved in what's going on right now in our world. So, Nancy, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you really being here. Really my pleasure, Jan. It was a pleasure to talk with you. You too. Thank you. Thank you. If you have missed any of the Jam Price shows uh, all about movies, you can go to my website, thejampriceshow.com. You can also go to the iHeart Podcast Network, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, anywhere where you get your podcast. You can also go to our YouTube channel, too. So thank you all for listening. Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show, all about movies. 